If you turn with me again in your Bible, this time to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1154. And in the larger print Bibles, 1784. 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll be beginning to read at verse 28. Father, your word is the truth. We pray that you will send your spirit to teach us the truth as we read and as we seek to understand. Amen. So chapter 12, verse 28, picking up from where we left off last week, and we'll read to the end of chapter 13. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts, And yet, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. 
then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's Word, and it's about love, our duty, and our destiny. If you don't like the word duty, you could substitute the word assignment or the word responsibility. Love is our assignment and our destiny. Love is our responsibility and our destiny. But before we think about that, let me remind you what we've heard in recent weeks in this letter. At the beginning of chapter 12, Paul spoke about gifts from the Spirit, various abilities which the Holy Spirit of God distributes among members of the church. And we noticed at the time, the particular gifts Paul mentions there are not an exhaustive list. In other places, the New Testament lists other gifts. And even if we added them all together, there's no reason to think we would have then an exhaustive list. The various lists in the New Testament are just representative of the kind of abilities the Spirit may distribute among members of the church. We cannot assume that every local church will have all the gifts that are listed, nor can we assume the Holy Spirit is restricted to giving only the gifts that are listed. What we do know is that He will equip each local fellowship with the gifts it needs to be faithful to God in its time and its circumstances. So the beginning of chapter 12 was about gifts, abilities. The next section in chapter 12 didn't mention gifts at all. Verses 12 to 27 told us the church is one body with many parts. And each part, each member of the body is indispensable to the health and effectiveness of the body. No part can say, I don't belong and no part can say to another part, I don't need you. We all have something vital to contribute, and we all need the vital contributions of others. Paul said all of that without mentioning gifts. And that turns out to be significant. Because in the passage we just read together this morning, Paul is still thinking about the health and effectiveness of the church body. And he wants us to see a healthy, God-honoring church needs more than gifts. He tells us gifts are important, but love makes our lives count. We already know the Corinthians were big on gifts from the Spirit. We know they got excited about gifts, particularly the more spectacular gifts. And Paul is not going to dampen their enthusiasm at all. Look again at the end of chapter 12, verse 28. And God has placed in the church, first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. 
Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. What are the greater gifts? Well, when we get to chapter 14, we'll find out what gift the Corinthians thought was the greatest, the gift of tongues. Tongues simply means languages. So we're talking about the supernatural gift of speaking other languages. Sometimes in the New Testament that it clearly referred to recognizable human languages. If you look back sometime to Acts chapter 2, that's what you find the apostles doing at Pentecost. But in other cases, what the person was saying apparently did not match any known human language. It seems that was the kind of tongues being spoken in the Corinthian church. We'll come back to that in chapter 14. But for the moment, all we need to know is that what was said in tongues could not be understood by the rest of the church. And yet the Corinthians were most excited about tongues. The gift that they loved best was a gift that did not benefit the rest of the church. However much it might have benefited the person speaking tongues, the rest of the church didn't gain from it. And so, Paul will say in chapter 14, tongues cannot be considered one of the greater gifts. That may be why when he lists gifts from the Spirit, Paul always puts tongues last. The greater gifts, according to Paul, are those that benefit the rest of the church not just the person who has the gift. That's the key to understanding the start of verse 28. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. Those gifts from the Spirit seem to be Paul's top three. And the reason is they benefit the whole church. Not just the person who has the gift, like the gift of tongues, and not just a small number of others, like the gift of healing, for example. The point seems to be every single gift from the Spirit is valuable. And apostles, prophets, and teachers have the widest possible value to the church. What does Paul have in mind with these three gifts? Well, the word apostle means messenger. That's often used in the New Testament to refer to those who preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus. So it's possible Paul is thinking of those who bring the good news about Jesus to a town or city for the first time. Today, we might call them church planters. On the other hand, the word apostle is also used in the New Testament to refer to a small, unique group of men, those original apostles who were commissioned by Jesus to lay the once-for-all foundation of the church. They did that by giving us the New Testament. So which meaning of apostle does Paul have in mind here? Well, most commentators believe it's the second one, the unique group of apostles. They were personally commissioned by Jesus to preach the definitive message of salvation and recorded in the New Testament. But actually, whatever sense Paul has in mind for the word apostle here, it doesn't affect the point he's making. 
The number one gift from the Spirit to the church are those who bring the message of Jesus, the Savior and Lord. Then prophets and teachers explain and apply that truth. They teach the whole of Scripture, God's Word to all believers in all times and all places. And with God-given wisdom, they also bring that truth to bear on the particular life and circumstances of the church. They show how God's truth speaks to each time and place. It's not hard to see why Paul seems to designate these three as the greater gifts. They provide what is foundational to the church, and so they have the widest possible benefit to the church. And it's right, Paul says, that we eagerly desire these gifts from the Spirit. Not necessarily for ourselves as individuals, but that we desire them for the church. We want the church to be well provided with God's Word and with wise, insightful application of God's Word. And we want this, we desire this, knowing we don't get to pick which gift is given to us personally. That's what Paul says in verse 29. He asks all these questions, and in each case, it's worded in such a way we know he is expecting the answer no every time. Are all apostles? No, of course not. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing, tongues? Do all interpret? No, no, no. God may give these gifts to the church. He most certainly will give each local church what it needs to be faithful to him. But he has not promised to give any particular gift to you or to me. No matter how badly we might want a certain gift for ourselves. But, and this is actually the reason Paul has mentioned the gifts here. He refuses to dampen the Corinthians' enthusiasm for gifts, but actually he wants to increase their enthusiasm for something else, something they have been less excited about. And what Paul has in mind is not a gift that might be given to some, it's a way. It's a path to follow, and it is open to all of us. In fact, it's required of all of us. None of us can choose the gifts the Spirit might give us, but we are all called to follow the way of love. And if we don't, Paul says, our gifts mean nothing. And we ourselves are nothing. Look at the beginning of chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, that's what the Corinthians got excited about. But, says Paul, if I have a gift like that, such an impressive gift, and I do not also have love, then my spectacular gift is just a bunch of useless noise. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, even if I had a deluxe gift of prophecy that could fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, even if I had a platinum-level faith, mountain-moving faith, 
If I don't also have love, I am nothing. That is amazing. Not just my gift is nothing, but I am nothing. Verse 3, if I give all that I possess to the poor, if I'm devoted to social action and sacrificial giving, even if I give my body over to hardship, even if I burn as a martyr, hoping it's going to count for something, it won't if I don't have love. If I do all of that and more, things that seem so impressive to those who are watching me. But if I do not have love, I gain nothing. Notice Paul doesn't say the church will gain nothing. I will gain nothing. No praise from God. No well done from heaven. And look what happens though if we flip all this around. If I cannot speak in the tongues of men or of angels, if I don't have the gift of prophecy, if I don't have mountain-moving faith, if I don't achieve any famous act of public generosity, but I do pursue the way of love, then I am something. And I gain something. My life counts. That should be a huge encouragement to us. Yes, gifts are important. The church as a whole needs gifts. It needs every gift that the Spirit gives. But the display of our gifts is not what God is really concerned with. It's not our gifts He is pleased with. It's our love. And that way is equally open to every single one of us. The Christian with the weakest gifting can live a life that is effective and delightful to God if they love. And the most gifted Christian, if they feel to love, will live a life that is nothing to God. Gifts are important, but it is love that makes our lives count. So then what does it look like to follow this most excellent way of love? We need a definition of the love Paul is talking about, and we find it in verses 4 to 7. Love lives for others. I think that sums it up. What Paul describes in these verses is a long, long way from the kinds of love we hear about in our culture. This is not the kind of love where a husband says to his wife, I know I've been cheating on you, but I've never stopped loving you. Neither is this the kind of love that says, my heart is full of feelings for you, but I just can't show it to you. Biblical love does show itself. It demonstrates itself. That's what God's love does. 
Romans chapter 5 said, God demonstrated his love for us by sending his son to die for us. God didn't keep his love hidden. And we are not to keep ours hidden. As we look at this description of love that lives for others, it's pretty obvious there's a lifetime's worth of challenge for all of us here. This is not the work of an afternoon. These are things for us to reflect on carefully and deeply and often for the rest of our lives. We'll try to reflect on them some more in our home groups in a couple of weeks. But we will spend the rest of our lives seeking to move forward on this way of love. But let's just try to get a flavor of it here. Verse 4, love is patient. Patience assumes we are being provoked in some way. We're being inconvenienced. We don't need to be patient unless something is making us feel impatient. In the face of provocation, love remembers the patience God has shown us. And then love shows love to others through their patience, through our patience. Love is kind. This is the active side of patience. Responding to others with compassion and mercy. Just as God has responded to us. Love does not envy. It doesn't begrudge others what they have. Whether it's their opportunities or their gifts or their resources, their popularity, their looks, their wealth, their marriage, their family. Those might all be things that we want desperately. But if God gives them to others and not to us, we do not get bitter that they are being blessed. And when we are blessed in those ways, love does not boast. It is not proud. We don't imagine we deserve those blessings more than other people do. Nor do we parade God's blessings in such a way that we're actually hoping to make others envious. Verse 5, love does not dishonor others. It doesn't belittle people. Some of us find it very easy to do that. And probably we call it banter. But there's a very fine line sometimes between banter and spitefully wounding other people. I think maybe those of us who are parents have to be particularly careful about that. Yes, God has put us in authority over our children in their younger years. But that never gives us an excuse to dishonor them. By making them feel small. Or announcing their weakness and their failures in front of others. Some children might laugh that off. Others will be utterly crushed by it. And whether they're crushed or not, love doesn't do it to them in the first place. I know every family has its own way of doing things. 
And I know we don't want to raise snowflakes. We're not to worship our children, but we must not dishonor them either. And husbands and wives are not to speak dishonorably to each other or about each other. Even when we disagree, and we will, we must find ways to disagree with respect. Not in ways that cut each other down. And it has to be the same with our brothers and sisters in Christ too. But dishonoring people is not limited to what we say. It can involve our actions as well. And if we think of the context of this whole letter and what's been said in the earlier chapters, dishonoring others includes a failure to preserve appropriate sexual boundaries with others in the church. If you are looking at others in the church as possible sexual conquests, you are dishonoring them. In another place, Paul shows how very different love is. He writes to Timothy telling him to treat the women in the church as sisters with absolute purity. And that certainly works the other way around as well. Ladies treating men as brothers with absolute purity. Still in verse 5, love is not self-seeking. One writer says, love does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. It is not enamored with self-gain, self-justification, self-worth. Instead, it believes a life of loving God and loving others is the best life we can live. A life of love counts. A life of selfishness is a waste. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't have a mental scoreboard going on of the wrongs that others do to us. We don't allow ourselves to brood over those wrongs on our scoreboard. We don't allow our mind and heart to meditate and ruminate on those things until our anger and our bitterness grows. Love refuses to treasure up anger and hurt. Maybe some of us here are still mithering about wrongs done to us years ago. Now, there's no question when someone does wrong to us, we don't have to pretend that it's okay. God doesn't think it's okay. But if we're determined that we're going to carry every offense on our shoulders forever after, if we won't let go, we will become so consumed by those things, we will be unable to love others. When we're wrong, the Bible gives us directions on how to proceed. We're not to bury it. We're not to brood over it. We're to go to the person who wronged us and raise the issue with them. 
But whether or not we're in a position to be able to do that, and whether or not that brings a satisfactory conclusion, still, at some point, we have to turn those offenses over to God and let them go. If we don't, they will continue to damage us. And they will handicap our ability to love. Verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, love does not enjoy things that God hates. Nor does it gloat or take pleasure in the failures of others. Yes, we are called to be ready to correct one another. But isn't it so easy to begin delighting in doing that? Taking a kind of perverse enjoyment in being an enforcer of righteousness. Hunting down the sins of others and denouncing them with our superhero outfit on. Yes, there will be times when we must confront sin in others. But love will do it with sadness, not with glee. Love is gleeful when sin loses the day and truth wins. Love is glad when there is repentance and change. When righteousness and holiness triumph in the situation, that is what makes love rejoice. That is what love delights in. Do you feel discouraged by all this? Does it seem overwhelming to pursue this way of love? Does verse 7 seem just too much? When it tells us that love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Well, saying that love protects is not a call to shield people from the consequences of their sin. Protecting them does not mean enabling them. It's about supporting them even as they face the consequences of their sin. Chapter 5 of this letter shows love does not avoid discipline when discipline is needed. Sometimes love brings discipline. And similarly, saying that love always trusts is not a call to be naive or gullible. It's not a command to believe whatever people tell us. In fact, it seems likely that always trusts and always hopes is not actually talking here about our attitude to other people. This seems to be referring to trust and hope in the goodness and faithfulness of God. Why do I say that? Well, trust and hope are going to pop up again in verse 13. There, trust is going to be translated as faith, but it is the same word as here. And in verse 13, the object of our faith and hope is God. And so it seems likely we should understand verse 7 the same way. Because we know, don't we, our brothers and sisters in Christ are not always lovable. 
and we're not always very lovable ourselves at times. If our love depended on being able to trust and hope in each other, it would probably peter out fairly quickly. But when our trust and hope are fixed on God, the one who has shown himself perfectly worthy of trust and hope, then we can persevere in love for each other. Not because we have some naive optimism that love is easy. No, we persevere because the God who calls us to love is a good and faithful God. And when he says love is the most excellent way, we take him at his word. Even when love is hard. Even when it seems a waste of time. Even when it treads on the toes of our own pride and our own ambition and our own desire to be first. Love lives for others because love trusts and hopes in God. And he tells us love is worth it. No act of love is ever wasted because love lasts forever. Here at the end of our passage, Paul brings gifts back into the picture, but only to show the superiority of love. Look again at those verses. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now... We see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. One writer sums up verses 8 to 13 like this. The point, chapter 13, verses 8 to 13, is that the church must be working in the present on the things that will last into God's future. Faith, hope, and love will do this. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, so highly prized in Corinth, will not. They are merely signposts to the future. When you arrive, you no longer need signposts. Love, however, is not just a signpost. It is a foretaste of the ultimate reality. Love is not merely the Christian duty. It is the Christian destiny. So why will words of prophecy and tongues and knowledge cease when Christ returns? Because we will see him face to face. In that moment, our partial knowledge and understanding will give way to complete knowledge and understanding. Now, Paul is not suggesting we will know all there is to know 
If we did, we'd be God. Our knowledge will never be God-like knowledge. But we will know all that God has planned for us to know. Here and now, there's already a lot we can know. God has revealed plenty of things to us in his word. But there is fuller knowledge of God still to come. And when that comes, gifts will have outlived their usefulness. Not only gifts of teaching and applying God's word, but also gifts of healing, for example. When we see Jesus, we will all be fully and finally healed. Paul says the gifts are given to help us through our spiritual childhood. That childhood will last until Christ returns. There's certainly a lot of growing we can do in the meantime. Back in chapter 3 of this letter, Paul rebuked the Corinthians because they'd been Christians for a few years, but they were still infants in Christ. So this is not telling us to be content with spiritual infancy. We are to pursue maturity. But these verses are telling us, however much progress we make in the meantime, seeing Jesus face to face will be the making of us. That meeting with our Lord will turn us at last into the mature men and women God always intended us to be. And then the gifts will have served their temporary purpose. But verse 13 says, faith, hope, and love will remain. For all of eternity, our faith and hope will rest on God. 60 billion years from now, he will still be the object of our faith and hope. We will still rest in his goodness and faithfulness. And love will also remain. Why does Paul say love is the greatest of the three? I think because love is a characteristic of God himself. We read earlier in 1 John, God is love. That's not all there is to say about God, but it is central to who God is. The Bible doesn't ever say God is faith or God is hope. Love is the greatest because it is essential to the character of God himself. And as we love, we are becoming more like him. In the future, love will not be the challenge it is for us now, because we will all be lovable people. And we will love to love each other. Jonathan Edwards says, heaven is a world of love. And according to scripture, he's right. But this passage is also telling us people on their way to that world of love will already be committed to love now. When love is our destiny, we will be happy to accept it as our duty here and now. 
as hard as it can be, and as far as we all fall short in this, we will not abandon our God-given assignment. Yes, we will eagerly desire that God gives gifts to His church, especially the greater gifts that make God's Word clear to the church. But whatever gifts God gives the church, whatever gifts He gives or doesn't give to us personally, all of us will pursue the way of love. Because God is love. And because our future destiny is His eternal kingdom of love. In a few moments, we're going to share this bread and wine. And as we do that, we will be remembering God's love for us, demonstrated on the cross. That is what fuels our love for each other. But before we meet around the table, we're going to sing together a version of 1 Corinthians 13. And then we'll sing a reminder of God's love to lead us into the Lord's Supper.